Hey, it's Alan Carter. Here's what's on the podcast today. New Ontario restrictions are coming. School rules for COVID change again. And the president has COVID. That's coming up. Let's get to it. Can we just hold on a little bit with the news? Can we just, maybe can we just portion it out a little bit? Oh my goodness. Wow, so much going on. It's, I really, my head is spinning a little bit. We're going to get to the Trump situation in just a second. We got some breaking information coming out of uh, the United States, uh, another COVID-19 positive test, and this one might actually have an impact on the selection of the next Supreme Court justice. I'm going to get you that in just a second as that story continues to develop. But as you heard in our newscast, everything is on the table. It's on the table. If there's if there's anything less left in the fridge, we're bringing it out and we're putting it on the table. And that is what's going on with the Ontario government right now. The cabinet is meeting and the word is that on the table right now, very strongly being discussed and a possible announcement coming up in less than an hour is that we will see more restrictions here in Toronto, that we'll get some some kind of new color-coded system. These are the reports that we're hearing. We have not been able to independently verify all of this, but much of it has been uh, has been has been reported, and you heard it in the news, the fact that we're looking at some kind of restrictions, maybe on restaurants, maybe on bars, uh, and those details are coming up. And the reason, of course, for that is the numbers. And you may have heard in the news, the number is 732. No, it's not. No, it's not. That's fake news. The number is not 732. If you're looking at your headlines today, even though that is what the province has published because there's been some data cleaning from spring. We're getting around to the spring numbers and we're cleaning them up. They get well, they're looking not great. It's now we're heading into the winter time. We got to clean those they clean that data right up. So that actually added 74 cases from back in the spring. So the real number today is 658 is your real number, but I always say don't get too caught up in the numbers because here is the jaw dropper again. I pointed out every day, and today it truly is jaw-dropping in terms of tests pending. 90,513. 90,000. Our tests completed in the past 24 hours, 40,000. And obviously that's a good number, but when you have the pending number continuing to outpace the testing number, we're getting further and further behind on being able to complete tests in a timely manner. And the Ford government is clearly scrambling now to deal with this. Even though we have seen this number, I have been been talking about this number for a week and a half now. I know you're like, shut up with this number already. But I've been talking about it so you know that the government has seen it and seen it get bigger and bigger. And they've seen, obviously, the lineups at testing centers get longer and longer. Oh, and by the way, we have a report this morning that one of the things that might be announced today is that those testing centers at the screening centers, you know, one of the hospitals, that they will be designated as appointment only. So no more standing outside for seven hours. you got to get an appointment. We'll see you in three weeks. And there will be about three weeks after that when you can actually get your test results back. None of that is good. None of, none of it is good. So we're standing by for details on that. Here's another number. 
not good. On our hospitalizations number, 167, we're up five. I keep talking about the lagging indicator here. So even though we see a 658 now, uh, the hospitalization number, that really two weeks from now, that begins to kick up. And then after that, that's when the ICU number kicks up. And the ICU number is up to, again today, uh, up to 38. And to just give you perspective on the ICU number, I often do this, 150 is your number anywhere below 150 in terms of ICU in the province of Ontario because of COVID-19. Scheduled surgeries can continue above that. It becomes difficult, that number continuing to tick up. So we're watching all of this, and really, it it really begs the question, if we do actually see some new restrictions today, and again, we're uh, looking into all of this, and it, it, apparently it's it's before cabinet, so we're not... You know, it's not 100% that Cabinet's going to completely rubber stamp and whether or not it's a complete agreement at the table. We know that Dr. David Williams has said, you know, we're, we're talking about this stuff and we'll take it to the table. And the Premier keeps saying everything's on this table. Uh, so, but if, if we do actually get these new restrictions, again, this will be days and days after a number of significant groups called on the government to stop being reactive Stop being reactive and realize that since we are clearly in a second wave, that we have to move now, we have to move faster. And I, the, the balance here is so difficult for the government. I certainly, I um, you know, I never would have wanted to run for public office, but now I just, I do not envy Doug Ford. And as much as, you know, I poke a needle a little bit, with Doug Ford, I, the, the balancing act here between trying to keep the economy as open as possible, trying to follow what is actually the science about where we know the transmissions are happening, and then you've got a surging number, and then you've got all these people on the sidelines shouting from the treetops, you know, shut her all down! And that is a that, that, that's tough to balance all of those things. For example, keep in mind about restaurants. You, you may be asking yourself about restaurants. Why is it that restaurants remain open and you can sit in them and you can go and dine inside? That, that doesn't make sense because the numbers are going up. Well, what the officials will tell you and what we heard from Dr. Barbara Yaffe again yesterday is that it's not transmission between server and patron, and it's not transmission between patron and patron. It is transmission between server and server at the end of the shift when the masks come down and everybody has a couple of glasses and says, well, wasn't that a terrible night and counting up your tips? And that that is the source of transmission. That's what the officials are telling us. I, You know, every time I walk past, you know, a restaurant or a patio and it's kind of packed, you know, it's not packed like before times packed, but packed. And you look and you go, mm, I think there must be some patron to patron transmission somewhere. I'm pretty sure there is. Hey, kids, you know what? It's time for school. Time for, well, let's, okay, little Johnny, let's get over here. Let's now let's get our flow chart out. And let's just work through this before we decide to send you off to school. 
There are complaints this morning that parents across this province are suffering from a little whiplash after significant changes to the symptom list and how symptoms are evaluated for kids going into school or childcare. Whiplash is how the NDP described it. All of these new changes, uh, taking some of the symptoms that keep kids out of school off the list, some of them are still there, but now if you have more than one, then you maybe have to get a test or not get a test. But I think one of the biggest things that was announced yesterday, and this came as a surprise to so many of us, parents and journalists alike, this is Dr. Barbara Yaffe talking about the whole policy when it comes to whether or not your kid needs a COVID test to be able to return to school. Uh, we are we are changing the policy or clarifying that schools and daycares should not be requiring a negative COVID test. Uh, in fact, they shouldn't even require a doctor's note. Um, the the, pay, the parent knows the the child the best. Um, if the parents has consulted the ch- the provider, the child is feeling better. They should be able to go back to school. That is Dr. Barbara Yaffe with a statement yesterday where she says at first that she's changing and then says, no, they are clarifying about this need for a test. And for all of those parents that stood for hours upon hours at testing centers with their children to get a test so that they could try and get their kids back to school, this comes as somewhat of a revelation. Are you confused? So is pretty much everyone else. Caroline Alfonso is the education reporter for the Globe and Mail. has been covering this sector and what's going on with back to school and all the rest and joins me on the line. Hi, Caroline. Hi, Alan. Thanks for having me on today. Do I overstate the confusion here for parents? You do not. You do not. Um, Frustration, confusion, those are words that I've been hearing all over. Parents have been messaging me and texting me. I'm a parent myself. I have two young kids in elementary school. And, um, you know, the, the line keeps changing. The guidance keeps changing. And the symptom list keeps changing. And for parents that have stood in those lineups that we've seen for five to six hours because their kid is out of school because they have a runny nose or a stuffed up nose, there's a lot of frustration right now because days of school have been missed as a result of this. When it comes to, you know, to runny noses, I want to talk about that because obviously British Columbia has moved and I think, I think we're moving on two weeks at least now where British Columbia removed uh, runny noses from its symptom list. Mm-hmm. Barbara Yaffe was asked about this yesterday, about why it is that it is still on our list in Ontario, although now if it is the only symptom you have, you, you don't have to get a test. You can just stay home from school for 24 hours. But here's what Dr. Barbara Yaffe said about runny noses yesterday. I've never discussed runny nose so much in my life, I have to tell you. Um up to 17% of children with COVID-19 in Ontario only had a runny nose when they started. So 
we felt we could, we had to include runny nose. Um, however, we know that runny nose is a very common symptom. And in the vast, vast majority of cases, it is not COVID-19. That is Dr. Barbara Yaffe. I'm speaking with Caroline Alfonso, who is the Globe and Mail's education reporter. Uh, so we can't take it off the list. However, in the vast majority of the cases, it's not COVID. I don't get it. So, so that statement, that, that clip right there, Alan, to me, is confusing as a journalist and as a parent. Because it, in one moment, she's saying 70, 17% of COVID cases in kids started with a runny nose. So we can't take it off the list, but she's also saying that it doesn't result in many COVID cases. That is confusing. And I wonder how much of this, how much of this new screening tool or this new revised list is based on evidence or how much is it to clear the backlog, the testing backlog that, you know, we heard today it's in the 90,000 range and to limit the absenteeism of kids in school. And I'm unsure of that, quite frankly. I do not know how much is based on evidence here. When we are hearing that 17% of COVID cases in kids started with just a runny nose. So right now, under the new screening guidelines, which I have to say, Alan, we don't know how these are going to be implemented by school boards and local public health units yet. Ottawa Public Health said they are reviewing it. They would revise it, but we haven't we haven't heard from Toronto Public Health yet. Maybe we will later today. So we don't know how that is going to be filtered down. But now if your kid has a runny nose, you keep them home for 24 hours and you monitor their symptoms. And if they're fine or if it's not a new or worsening symptom, you send them back to school. But if we have 17 percent of cases that started with runny noses, how do you sort of link the two? So how much of this is based on evidence is my question at the end of the day. That's an, an excellent question. And, and another question that came up yesterday is as part of this new flow chart, what it says is if you have two of these, well, what I will call more minor symptoms, such as headache, sore throat, runny nose. So let's say you have all three mm-hmm. of those. Uh, you now have to discuss with your doctor about whether or not to get a COVID test, but you do not require any kind of proof in any case of any doctor visit or any actual COVID test. Is that new? So first of all, I just want to make the point that the fact that you have to go to the doctor, we're, not every parent has that luxury. And we need to keep that in mind. So making a statement like that, we have to remember that not every family has a doctor they can turn to. Secondly, is that is that new? So the guidance document back in August before school started said that a negative test was not required. It's clearly stated there. But when parents and families went to the screening tool, they, it said that if you had those symptoms, you had to get a test or you had to stay home for 14 days. I know that many daycares have required proof of a negative test in order for a child to go back to the daycare. And is that going to change now? I haven't heard otherwise yet, but of course, the changes just were implemented yesterday. So 
things are changing, things are developing, and I think families are caught in this place where we're trying to figure out how to how to maneuver, what to do with our children. Like do we do kids are loving being in school. I know mine too love being there right now. But what is going to keep them home? How is that going to change? Right now, parents have kept their kids home with one symptom, runny nose, because schools have told them that. That's the direction that they receive from schools through local public health authorities. Now we're saying you have to have two symptoms to stay home, to get to be at home for 14 days or to talk to your family doctor. So, you know, as you said in the beginning, this is sort of like a big flow chart. Every morning, parents are going to be having to look at this flow chart, determine what the symptoms are, how many symptoms, and what to do in each particular case. I appreciate that the science about this pandemic has changed and will continue to change, and we must remain flexible, and I think we have to be flexible and as parents and as, as journalists as well to understand that things do change. Nevertheless, I think of an acquaintance of mine whose one child had uh, you know, sneezed in class. The teacher said, do you have a runny nose? The child said, yes. That child and that child's sibling were both sent home. And then that parent had to go and drive around and try and find an assessment center and spend hours and hours and hours to you know, get this fairly invasive test for a small child done. And now to find out, well, that that's not actually required, that has got to just sting. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm with you. I understand the science has changed. We've learned so much since the spring. You know, we've learned so much about play structures and what kids can do outside. Uh, we've learned about our habits outside and how it's changed. But I think what's missing in all of this, especially with this screening tool and especially with all the hours that people have had to wait to get their children tested is that there has been a lack of clear communication. And that's what's missing in this. People do not know what direction to turn and it has to be clearer than it has to at this point, than it has been to this point and it has not been clear and it still continues to be unclear because we're learning about these guidelines set forth by the province. But when we're asked about whether that's going to trickle down to our local public health units and to our schools, we're not receiving clear direction about that. You can't have, you know, the provincial government saying one thing and local public health units and schools saying another. That is confusing and there has been no clear messaging around that. Speaking with Caroline Alfonso, who is the education reporter for the Globe and Mail, and just a last question. You talk about the confusing messaging. I, I will note that uh, at the health update yesterday, it was Dr. Barbara Yaffe. Dr. Williams was not there. Uh, Dr. Williams, I often, you know, I often talk about the difficulty in understanding what it is he has to say, and, and I don't call into question his credentials or anything like that, but there others have, other real doctors have, but how much do you make of the the muddling of communication being ex, in an extension of him being the lead doctor in this province? I that's that's you know it. I I've listened to him speak. I've listened to the messaging. Um, it has not been clear, and as a result, we have these long lineups 
at testing centers. And I think that there, I, I, I understand the criticism. I've seen the criticism and I am, you know, I am a journalist and I will not pick a side in this, but I also do think that it starts from the top. The clear messaging has to start from the top. And right now, many people are saying that it's not clear enough at the top and it's led to a lot of confusion and a lot of families pulling their kids out of school for days on end. Caroline, great to have you on the program. Thank you so much for your reporting and thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Alan. That is Caroline Alfonso, who is the education reporter with The Globe and Mail. Donald Trump testing positive for coronavirus is pretty much right on brand for 2020, is it not? Just more confusion and uncertainty. Here's the tweet from Donald Trump. Tonight, Flotus and I tested positive for COVID-19. We will begin our quarantine and recovery process immediately. We will get through this block caps together. And hours earlier, the president had appeared in a virtual video message for New York's annual Al Smith dinner, expressing optimism that the virus outbreak was almost over. I just want to say that the end of the pandemic is in sight. This is Donald Trump just prior to announcing that he had tested positive for COVID-19. One attendee saying the president came in contact with about 100 people and that he seemed lethargic. And a person briefed on the matter said that Mr. Trump fell asleep at one point on Air Force One on the way back from a rally in Minnesota on Wednesday night. And now this development, Utah Senator Mike Lee has tested positive for COVID-19. Senator Lee was at the White House on Saturday for that Rose Garden event and met with Amy Coney Barrett, the presumed uh, candidate or actually the candidate for the Supreme Court. Now, remember this moment on masks from the presidential debate? I mean, I have a mask right here. I put a mask on, you know, when I think I need it. Tonight, as an example, everybody's had a test and you've had social distancing and all of the things that you have to. But I Just wear like masks when needed. When needed, I wear masks. Okay, let me ask. I don't, have to, I don't wear masks like him. Every time you see him, he's got a mask. He could be speaking 200 feet away from him and he shows up with the biggest mask I've ever seen. The biggest mask I've ever seen, that is Donald Trump to Joe Biden during their debate earlier this week. Let's talk about the prognosis for the president. The White House says that the president and the first lady are well with mild symptoms. Of course, the president at the age of 74, uh, who is clearly overweight, he does have comorbidity because of those issues. Uh, the current estimates suggest that symptoms, if they appear, could do so in as quickly as two days or as long as last, last as long, pardon me, as 14 days. Uh, There could be just mild symptoms. That's what the White House is reporting now. But we know that the way that this virus works is it begins often with mild symptoms and then in some cases can worsen. Uh, The reaction from around the world has been swift from the prime minister of this country. Sophie and I are sending our best wishes. We hope you both get well soon and have a full recovery from this virus. That is from our prime minister, Justin Trudeau. This is British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. The CDC has changed the procedure for sharing coronavirus information with the public, including vital guidance on who should be tested and when. A source familiar with the CDC's response told ABC News. Science- I'll just break in there. Sorry, I don't know. We, we got the wrong thing there. Pardon me. Uh, that's probably my fault. In fact, 100% is my fault. But Boris Johnson issuing a, uh, 
uh, support for the president. And then there's this one from Vladimir Putin writing to Mr. Trump, quote, I am sure that your inherent vitality, vigor, and optimism will help you overcome the dangerous virus. I'm not sure if your vigor and optimism can help you with COVID-19. I don't know if there's any science behind all of that. Well, to discuss more about what all of this means and where we go from here, I'm pleased to welcome back to the program Brendan Levine, who is a University of Toronto professor and a political science expert. Welcome back. I, when you woke up this morning, you saw this news, what'd you think? <laughs> I, I, I was just blown away. I mean, it was one of those things like I was having a bit of a slow morning and yeah, and then I'm like, oh my goodness. Uh, you know, this is one of these moments where, you know, although I'm happy to sit here talking to you and pretend I'm an ex- expert, but the reality is we're in uncharted territory. Uh, you know, to have a president, and, 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 you know, despite those comments, I mean, he is admitting that he is actually symptomatic already. Um, so, I mean, it could be the fatigue and the hoarse voice and whatnot are not COVID-related, but given that he has these symptoms and a positive COVID test, we have to talk about a symptomatic president and the fact that his aides have been exposed. Those aides have worked with people, other aides, and people on the other side of the aisle. I mean, has Biden essentially been exposed? Uh, the Secret Service is already stretched thin at this point for a campaign because they have to deal with both the Democrat and the Republicans and entourages. And so there's a lot of Secret Service members that no doubt have been exposed because the latest news is is confirmed. The White House is confirming that they knew that Hope Hicks was positive before President Trump traveled yesterday. This is just so irresponsible. It's just shocking. But the political implications, I don't know. I mean, I would expect there's going to be some sympathy, but we have to be looking ahead and saying, well, if Trump's not on the campaign trail, um, how is that going to affect things? And actually, part of it is is actually it may actually help him a little bit because some of his staffers and some of his surrogates are more effective at this point than he is at doing things like dispelling rumors that he condones white supremacy. Just a quick update on a couple more test uh, information that's coming in. Uh, Joe Biden has tested negative. Uh, he and his wife have been tested, but there is another positive test, and that is the president of Notre Dame, who was in attendance at that White House announcement, also where the um, the uh, the governor, pardon me, also has tested positive. So, you know, like you say, this has a ripple effect as it spreads out. And the other one of the things to keep in mind is that. How is it possible that the two remaining debates between Mr. Trump and Mr. Biden can take place, especially when the next one is scheduled for less than two weeks from now, and Mr. Trump should still at that point be in quarantine? Yeah, Uh, it's I mean, look, in some ways, this could be an advantage. I think most of us watching that debate on Tuesday night was almost like this would have been better on Zoom, (laughs) you know, mute yourself and now we can pay attention. And that actually is probably to Trump's advantage. The backlash has been surprisingly strong against his behavior on Tuesday night that a, a Zoom-type format can help. But, I, I mean, if he's symptomatic, um, you know, so much of his strength, so much of the image he likes to convey is that vitality, 
that Putin mentioned and that strong leadership, this aggressiveness. And, you know, even if he has mild flu-like symptoms, I'm not sure we're going to see that trademark aggressiveness. Um, So, yeah, I mean, the debates can happen virtually. If he's largely asymptomatic, that should be able to be what we're talking about. But, you know, both sides obviously are going to have to agree on that. And, of course, it was the Republicans for months saying that they didn't want to have that happen. If I was to peer into the crystal ball, and that is obviously very dangerous, and especially in a year like 2020, I think the odds are, obviously, as we know the odds are, that the president will recover. And then I think the concern that a lot of people have is that what that will do is that, that the president will just emerge from this and say, I survived it, it's not that big a deal, and downplay the virus. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really afraid of that. And, um, and but I want to be clear. Right. I mean, I, um, you know, as I like to tell my students, you know, I am an American. I grew up in Philadelphia. I have a Ph.D. You know, all these things would define me as very likely on the left. Uh, and I do vote Democrat. But I, I want this president to recover. But certainly from a political standpoint, yeah, I'm afraid if in two, three days, hypothetically, he says, oh, look, I had a horse throat and no big deal, and now I'm fine, yeah, that could amplify this, you know, we have nothing to worry about COVID message, and that would be really dangerous. What what does this do, if anything, with his base, with Trump's base? I mean, we've seen that it has just been an immovable rock throughout his presidency. Does this change anything for his base? You know, that's that's a really good question. Um, I I think I think this is the kind of thing that would have to change, and I think it's going to affect how many people are going to be looking at this vice presidential debate. Um, I think people, um, both the base and swing voters, are now going to be very interested in seeing what Pence and Vice President Pence and uh, Senator Kamala Harris uh, will look like, because the reality of this not being a hoax, and Trump being sick this week, Biden at the age of 77, about to turn 78, um, also possibly getting sick, if not now, then in a couple of months, um, raises the prospect that, yes, this COVID thing is really real. And of course, I'm sitting in my basement teaching remotely going, thank you, everybody. I mean, for six months, we've known that this is really, really real. I, I, I think this is something that, yes, will absolutely affect his base at least a little bit. Um, and, of course, Trump can ill afford to lose some of these supporters. I don't think that's going to happen in the next week or two, because if anything, there's going to be some you know, outpouring of support, some sympathy, um, messages from the White House about, you know, we're taking things seriously and, you know, uh, we are redoubling our efforts to, you know, go fight this plague. Um, But come election day, yeah. And especially if people are afraid. I mean, remember, Trump's been attacking mail-in voting for months now. Um, So we're now 30 days away. A lot of people have voted. Early voting in a lot of states is either started or about to start. If Republicans start going, oh my gosh, this is real, and I'm afraid to go out, turnout's going to be an issue on the Republican side. And and that's going to have implications, not just for the presidency, but for the House and Senate races. I heard 
this was a, a theory that was put forward that I, from the New York Times um, recently, and I hadn't heard this one before, and I wonder if you could comment on it. That, uh, th- this theory sort of puts forward that the reason that the president is saying that, you know, he'll wait and see, and he doesn't think that the, you know, that the election will be uh, legitimate is that it's not necessarily that it's a, a way for him to hold on to power is that it might also be a way for him to save face in a defeat, that he could say, okay, well, I'm leaving, but I didn't really lose. Yeah, I, I very much would concur with that analysis. Um, I, you know, some of, and I think Republicans have even said that, that, oh, all this bluster uh, about him attacking the legitimacy of the race, um, Political scientists like me, when we hear that, we begin become afraid for democracy. And some Republicans have dismissed it and said, this is him trying to, like, essentially set up the blow to his own ego. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I see – I mean, I have no reason to doubt this positive COVID test. But, yes, a narrative of I would have been reelected except for COVID or I would have been reelected except that, you know, everything went off the rails – on the 1st of October, uh, all of these things could be ways that Trump uses to cushion the blow of the fact that, I mean, the polls just look dreadful for him right now. I mean, he still has a chance, but, you know, you'd never want to be 35 odd days away from an election and be between six and nine points behind your opponent. And so, unable to campaign because of a positive COVID test. Yeah, and not and not able to campaign. All of these things, and so to, for him to be able to say yes, you know, oh, I would have, I was already coming back, um, you know, we were already rallying. All those things, I think, will fit a narrative and could have implications for how Republicans accept a Biden victory and a Biden presidency, and of course, will have implications for twenty twenty four. I think. For me, a big question, if Biden wins, is will, say, non-Trump Republicans say, you know what, that was an interesting four years, and we have to go back to way we were before, before this populism? Or are they going to say, Trump showed us the light, we need to stay very populist-focused? Um, and so a, oh, he only lost because of covid definitely, I think, informs that narrative and informs what direction the Republican Party goes in between 2020 and 2024, minimum. Ren Levine is a University of Toronto professor, is in his basement, <laughs> political <Yeah>. science expert. <laughs> uh, always great to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on again My today. My pleasure. Everyone, be safe. Wear a mask. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget to catch The Alan Carter Show weekdays beginning at noon.